0: Hello, this is a message from the Podcast Marketing Board of Great Britain. Are you looking to be educated, informed and entertained in the security of your own home? Are you thinking of isolating yourself from all human contact? Are you living under the stairs with a stockpile of loo roll and AA batteries? Then podcasts are the choice for you. They're personal, they're portable, they're private and you don't have to wash your hands after listening to them though you might want to rinse out your ears. Stay in touch with the outside world with a great British-made podcast today. Hello uh, and welcome back to Romaniacs, (laughs) your weekly fully sterilised environment. I'm Naomi Smith and with me today I have Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk and as listeners to our special Patreon-only podcast, Ask Romaniacs, discovered last week, he is also champion of the traditional Guatemalan Doritos lasagna. Ian, how are you? <laughs> it's not ever going to stop. <laughs> it's never going to stop. How are you? Yeah, yeah, good. good. yes yeah? uh, yeah. Any any legal letters from PepsiCo about your, your recipe?
1: Is that, is that who owns it? Yeah, they own Doritos. No, yes. no, 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 none at all. Look, I've tried it with variations on the theme. <laughs> so, like, there's different kinds of crisps. Sometimes you can sort of make your own little. You know, you get like a, a maize tortilla. You shallow fry Ooh. it. Use that control. Crunch- Nothing works as well as
0: Doritos. <laughs> I like, shit you not. Like nothing works. The as MSG well as ratio to whatever fucking spooky palm shit. Palm oil is, is just perfect. Mm-hmm. It's the tits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um. If listeners want a veganized version, I'm going to actually have a stab at it uh, on Insta stories at some point Ooh. soon. I,
1: I actually cannot wait yeah. to do it. Yeah.
0: I am definitely going to. Um. Anyway, on slightly more serious note, uh, you noted over the weekend, um, that it's all a bit pointless for people to be stockpiling loo roll, uh, when we really should be stockpiling food. Oh, do you no sort no. of I mean, no, I said stop part of the fucking books, but uh, I, I was quite
1: clear, I thought, like, books, and in my case comics, but I accept that most people are not sufficiently, sort like of, intellectually accomplished to go for comics. So, so, books, booze, then food, then Lura. <laughs> but it's just, I just can't understand, like, you're just watching them take all the Lura and you're like, what the fuck are you going to do for, like, too much? Do you, what are you, just shit? shit? for a fortnight. Like, is that the entirety <laughs> of your fucking plan?
0: So was it like a, a display of what I like to call Bumkirk spirit or a demonstration <laughs> that really we're still the nation that dialed 999 when KFC ran out of chicken in 2018? What does bit, it say about us? I,
1: there's a bit of me that thinks,
0: is it the fucking Walking Dead? <laughs> and like the fact that
1: all of these zombie for like, you know, World yeah. War II and blah, blah, blah came out. And just because that is such a big part of our culture, like now people have just got to think of as soon as they see something, get in the to news, the Winchester, like, get the fucking bog roll, get the bog roll, and obviously in America they'll also get the ammunition, which we don't have the option of. But if we had it, we would fucking do exactly the same.
0: Okay, so we're going to be talking a bit more about community resilience later. But um, the one, well, one of the major EU-related incidents of the past few days was the sudden flare-up on the Turkish-Greek border. Mm. Um, for those too busy trying to track down hand sanitizer, Ian, what's been going on?
1: The the EU did a series of deals uh, with the devil, um, uh, while simultaneously um, enacting its more angelic side during the refugee crisis. So they, you know, for instance, Angela Merkel's thing. We saw a, a sort of a formalization of what had until then been informal refugee flows. But around the back end, what they did was engage with some of the most despicable regimes surrounding Europe in order to stop the boats from coming in the first place. Mm. So they did that with Erdogan in, um, in Turkey. They did it via the cartoon process. They did it probably arguably most disgracefully of all in Libya, where they have essentially turned the Libyan coast guard into prison enforcement. Jesus. People to be just trapped in camps in Libya where they're routinely tortured, where there is absolutely no viable state whatsoever. Um, in Erdogan's case, I mean, they the swap, it was basically, look, stop them coming into Turkey from Syria in the first place, which he did by building a wall and shooting indiscriminately at people trying to cross from Syria as they tried to get out for basically certain death. Um... And also get rid of the visas, which were essentially allowing those who could afford it, uh, Syrians from the refugee camps, to get a flight into Turkey and from there try mm-hmm. to make their way into Europe. Now, he did this. He, in, in response, he got, he got some money. He got some visa liberalization, which never transpired. But what he really got was leverage. So from that point on, Erdogan, whenever Europe fucked with him in any way, he was just like, okay, you want to keep on doing that? Because I will just open the fucking borders. Mm. And that eventually is what he has done. And the re- the response from Europe has been so... App- like The Greek response has been just... It, 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 to say it's immoral, it's to do an injustice to language. It is absolutely fucking abysmal. And then to see the commission call Greece Europe's shield without even a sense of having any fucking humanity about mm. the way that they engage mm. a complete acceptance, a complete acceptance of the Orban narrative. A complete acceptance of it, without any questioning whatsoever that this is a national security issue rather than a humanitarian issue. Yeah. And that is that is what we are seeing right now.
0: And talking of human- the humanitarianness of it, I think at the time of recording, there are no known outbreaks of coronavirus within the refugee camps there. But presumably it's only a matter of time and these people are already, you know, living in the most horrendous conditions, have, you know, they're at the bottom of the queue for absolutely everything uh, other than death. Um, it, 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 yeah. Surely the EU needs to respond on at least that level to protect itself, if not I I people. can't
1: see any... I, I think they are so terrified of the refugee crisis again becoming an internal political issue within the EU mm. that there is almost no questioning that their entire policy is of border enforcement and, and essentially trying to offshore the problem so it doesn't even get to, to Europe's borders.
0: Also with us is Roz Taylor of LSE Brexit. Hi, Roz. Hello. Talking now about Labour uh, and uh, Keir Starmer saying that he wouldn't rule out campaigning to rejoin the EU at some time in the future. Um, He didn't volunteer this. He was answering... a. Becky Long-Bailey uh, point um, who had ruled herself out uh, from wanting to rejoin us, did Lisa Nandy. And um, was this a good shout by him? Have you cracked open your yellow and blue bunting already?
2: Uh, no, I'm in no mood to crack out any uh, bunting right now. But but um, it was absolutely reasonable. You know, I, I don't see how... I mean, he said it was not a priority for now or in the immediate future. Well, of course it's not a priority now in the immediate future. <laughs> we have quite a lot on our plate right now. Um, but ruling it out forever, as the other two did, is just silly. Um, things change things are changing so fast in the world in politics that to well, we wouldn't even cut off your options practically but to say no never I mean that's ridiculous mm. so I'm 100% with him on that.
0: Um, yeah I agree I mean I you know I think I'm somebody who has said the first rule of rejoining club is don't talk about rejoining club but that doesn't extend to and when asked well okay at some point in the future once everything else is sorted out would you be open to it and then of course the the answer is yes um the, the other thing that's sort of been happening uh, as we've just entered the podcast booth um is of course the budget um and coronavirus seems to have kicked it into being the most keynesian budget of all time um what's your sort of initial read on it if you managed to catch any of it before you came along to the recording is do you reckon Sajid is sitting at home munching popcorn or is he um seething with jealousy at Sunak's pretty prime ministerial performance
2: I don't think he's uh, seething with, with anything except possibly relief that he's not in charge of this shit show. Um, <laughs> it, it, I mean, the amount of money being thrown at the economy in order to try and stave off a recession, which will be impossible, by the way, but it's a question of staving off the depth of the recession, is enormous. I mean, the thing that we should bear in mind as well is that the economy was already flatlining in January, pretty mm. much before coronavirus came yeah, along. Yeah, we had
0: GDP figures out this morning, it basically
2: Zero, said, yeah. 0.0%. The economy is screwed already because of bre- Brexit. And this was at a time when we... uh, Did you hear all the stuff about, oh, everything's picking up, the economy's picking up, Boris Bounce? Absolute rubbish. It's not been happening. It is not happening. And now we have coronavirus to deal with. So it was a budget in a vain attempt to try and stave off economic disaster.
0: Our guest this week will be talking us through the murky world of political party funding, electoral spending laws and the sheer scale of current Tory party fundraising. Dr Seth Tevo is a political and cultural historian who specialises in politicians' financial interests and he's just completed a fascinating report on the money behind the 2019 election for Open Democracy. Hello, Seth.
3: Hello. Um,
0: we're going to be talking about your report in much more detail later. Um, but on a scale of, say, um, Koch brothers to Putin, how big a problem is dark <laughs> money in British politics?
3: It's massive. Um, one of the issues is that we've always had a relatively large pool of donors, actually, for the Tories. And for all the rhetoric about, oh, it's the party of the rich, or it's dependent on a small number of donors. Well, it was never this bad it's really, really noticeable. We have election rules around donations and spending, but actually chasing up who's behind these donations, there are massive loopholes, which all the parties... uh take advantage of. The Tories have much more money, so they have much more scope to take advantage of these laws. Um, if you look, for example, at how it's theoretically illegal to front for somebody's donations and use donations, money that's come elsewhere, um, actually everybody does this to some extent. Um, there's almost no way of enforcing this in practice. The Electoral Commission has the right to investigate. It doesn't use its powers quite as much as I think most people would like to see it do so. So, for example, um, it is illegal to donate money as a foreign national, uh, of course. uh, But, obviously, if you have somebody who's a relative who's a dual national, you can funnel money through them. Um, And, obviously, if you have a UK trading company, you can donate the money through there. Mm -hmm. Now, even if the UK trading company is making a massive loss... Even if it's actually just the cost of doing business that in the course of donating X million pounds per year, you set up a little company that loses 5k, doesn't really matter. That's the cost of doing business. Our laws actually make that entirely illegitimate at the moment.
0: Crumbs. Okay. well, we're used to hearing a lot about data manipulation, um, Cambridge Analytica, etc, etc. But is the old fashioned way um, of doing campaigning just more effective in your view? You just buy the outcome you want?
3: Um depends what you mean by the old-fashioned way. I mean, there's, there was never a golden age. You know, if there was a golden age, it was of oligarchs who bought elections, actually. That, and that's the thing that framed how our election laws were written, how mm. spending limits, for example, in the 1880s were brought in the first time because they could see people buying elections blatantly. And so they started putting limits on individual activity. But there are massive loopholes. Um, the last major bill of campaign finance reform uh, in 2000 and Put in a limit on spending in your local constituency, you can't spend more than about 15k, but most parties spend about 50 grand at least on every constituency. They just uh, tally up the paperwork slightly differently so it's on national issues, so it doesn't count towards the local campaigning budget limit. So these are all legal ways in which our political parties flagrantly go around the spirit of the law. And no one's really interested in reforming it because they all work within the system.
0: Speaking of the system, uh, one of your other specialisms is club governments of the 1830s to 1860s, uh, (laughs) where the gentlemen's clubs of St James's uh, basically ran the country. Um, Are we back there yet? Does club government persist at all? I mean, this is, of course, before uh, the renovations for the House of Commons have begun and they have actually all had to come to their clubs anyway. I've
3: completely changed my mind on this in the last few years. And I used to say, no, it was a strange old thing from the 19th century that has no modern parallel and these clubs are just the venue. You like any other. What changed my mind actually was working around the Cambridge Analytica story. These guys were all using clubs, and specifically, they were all using reciprocal clubs because they all belonged to Pall Mall clubs. They all were jetting into you know Fort Worth or Dallas, Texas, and they had no contacts there. They knew nothing, but they would impress their clients by saying, "Yes, I know a little quiet, discreet place. Uh, no one will be there. No one to keep an eye on us." And the very noticeable thing about that is it's where the shady deals are done. It's where th- Things so that are in out. the
0: offshore reciprocal club oh, yeah. rather than the actual Pall Mall Club uh well, a few
3: of the Pall Mall clubs as well, you know um we can get into specifics, but yes there there are the point is it's lack of scrutiny yeah and it's secrecy, and anything in that environment tends to attract arms dealers. Slightly shady people, uh, certainly election manipulators, absolutely.
0: Well, speaking of someone who's probably too um, loud to ever be secret, um, an (laughs) amazing uh, Seth Alexander Tevo fact is that you once set up the campaign to get Brian Blessed made Chancellor of Cambridge (laughs) University. How did that go?
3: Uh, Well, there's a reason why I'm not an academic at Cambridge University these
0: days.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Bear in mind that, uh, I mean, to tie it into this, of course, Lord Sainsbury, the eventual winner of that contest, was the second largest donor in the history of the university behind Bill and Melinda Gates. And um, he is, of course, the largest donor to any political party in history. Uh, the Liberal Democrats, despite continuing to sit as a Labour peer, he just donated £8 million to the Lib Dems ahead of the last general election, hmm. which bought the Lib Dems one-twentieth of the seats of the Labour Party, despite their actually having almost two-to-one <laughs> donations to the Labour
1: Party. So on, on the plus side, they made that lovely bust with her face plastered all over it. So that was, you know, so
3: swings and roundabouts. Lib Dems have form on creating large, expensive forms of advertising that lose voters. <laughs>
0: All very fascinating. Um, So we're going to come back uh, to Seth's investigation into dark money later. Um, We're also going to be covering the unexpected double blow of coronavirus and the sudden oil shock. Um, And we've got the truth about chlorinated chicken from an excellent story in Wired magazine. Now, who would have thought this time last week that within seven days we'd be looking at an economic crash on the scale of the 2008 financial crisis or, as Peston is saying, worse? The combination of the coronavirus and a surprise escalation in the Russia-Saudi oil dispute, which produced the biggest oil price crash since the first Gulf War, delivered a full-scale meltdown and the fifth worst day in the history of the FTSE. Almost £125 billion was wiped off the value of the FTSE and trading on Wall Street had to be suspended within minutes of opening. However, oil is at the same price as 2002, though, so we can burn all our Priuses, tell Elon Musk to go and do one and literally (laughs) drive Britain out of a recession. Who's in? (laughs) Ian, among other questions to which the answer is no, um, is this a good time to start erecting trade barriers with our closest (laughs) trading partners?
1: It's always the tough questions that you ask me. (laughs) Um, No, it isn't. I mean, how do we even sort of start with it? I guess the thing is that once you've got a crisis, you don't really want two crises to come along at the same time. Um, So the main coronavirus threat is obviously one on demand, which is that people are not going to be going out to buy so much stuff. And the less demand there is, the less money there is coming into businesses, the less they'll invest, the more likelihood there is of them getting rid of jobs. And the Johnson is responded to that today in the pretty classic Keynesian way, as if the last fucking 20 years of our lives just never happened. And in fact, you know, the Tories are full centre leftists, completely convinced of the logic of fiscal stimulus. Um, so that is-
0: and, and we had the interest rate cut.
1: Right, exactly, exactly. So you know, interest rate cuts—you'll typically use that because you're trying to increase demand. So if you cut interest rates, banks are more likely to lend to other banks. They're more likely to lend to other people. They're more likely to lend to businesses. Businesses will invest more. And it's the classic kind of thing of what you do when when you're scared about what's going on with demand. What makes me a bit weird about it with the coronavirus is—is is, is it's a sort of external threat that has come. It's not an economic threat. It's external to that. And on that basis, even if you were to give people more money, it's not necessarily clear how they would spend it if they're locked in their house, you know, and unable to leave. Of course, you can do some internet shopping, but that isn't necessarily going to be that, you know, there's some sort of how you get an economy going again. So in that scenario, if you then take businesses and cut up their trading supply lines... That's very bad. If you take, for instance, what they've done, what they announced with EASA this week. EASA is a European aviation safety agency. I have never spoken in three years to anyone in aviation or aerospace who thinks that we should be leaving this thing. Not one person. I mean, they all said, we we want a really close relationship. We either reflected ourselves or you try and find up some kind of association agreement to stay inside it. Because we're not going to set the fucking rules for aviation in Britain for the rest of the world, for a product that's made all over the world, and to set standards that everybody agrees what they should be. Nevertheless, they've decided to leave it out. It won't surprise you to learn that the the stupidest thing they could do is, in fact, now officially government policy. Is
0: that stupider than the Grayling thing?
1: (laughs) Oh, good. No, that is a tough question. That is... what I mean, oh, no, that is hard. That is hard. I can't answer any question about, is that stupider than the Grayling thing? Right (laughs) then, I mean, I can't. So you kind of got me there. So look, in that situation, you've fucked business hard there. You've got a consumer demand problem. You put these things together, and that could potentially be very, very bleak indeed.
0: Ros, the Brexit era has been all about uh, we can take it. We survived the Blitz, um, even though obviously we didn't. Um, we've already seen bog roll buy up um, psychologically. Literally
2: fitting ourselves.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, quite. So um, psychologically, are we set up for shortages and no, you know everything that's coming with it? Can can the British Hardy self image survive?
2: No, no, I don't think it's very different quality to the. I would say, actually, excitement among many people about No Deal, because No Deal was a very different proposition. It's self-inflicted suffering mm-hmm. in the cause of a noble pursuit of sovereignty for many people. And that has a certain appeal. And just being scared to death of dying and not having mm-hmm. enough to eat and, and is, is is not. It's a different mm-hmm. quality of thing. And I think there's a genuine panic there, and I think particularly more among older people because older people tend to be fairly blasé, not always, but sometimes blasé about no deal. And I think when you have a category of people that is particularly at risk, it's a very different Mm -hmm. proposition.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, And Ian mentioned EASA, but there's also the um, story that that Plisico broke yesterday around access to vaccine. So there are, as I understand it, emergency measures come into place across Europe through um, the EMA, which of course was resident in London, now no longer is and the ECDC, the European Centre for Disease Control, um, that they will um, bulk buy a vaccine when it is ready, and of course it isn't yet ready, on behalf of its nation states Um, and I think this is something that actually, as you've mentioned, these older people that are feeling very, very vulnerable had potentially been blase about um, leaving the EU are are potentially, do you think, up for um, being won over on this particular issue, that actually being outside of that opportunity potentially puts Brits at the back of the queue for a vaccine when it's ready?
2: Yeah. In fact, I begin to think that uh, Boris Johnson, of course, completely ruled out any kind of delay to any kind of extension of the transition period, not that that was really on the table anyway, but given the extreme circumstances in which we find ourselves in, I would not be entirely surprised if we did see a further extension of some sort and it may be that it will be. It will take a couple of months for people to to realize that this would be a good idea, and that, but that ultimately, desperate pragmatism may may trump ideology, as we have been hoping it will do for the past few years, but it has failed to do, and for entirely the wrong reason. But I hope that it will.
1: I mean, there could even be a sense that it just gets, it just sort of gets buried in that no one even fucking notices. I mean, they if you remember, if the, yeah, if the coronavirus story has the velocity and the mass that it mm. currently has in the news agenda, mm. you could you could pretty much extend and it would be a nib on page four, you know, within a couple of months. So, I mean, potentially that mm. opens up more possibilities for them. But again, just because they've got the possibilities doesn't mean they won't do something catastrophically fucking stupid because that is their track record.
3: I mean, that said, it does answer a question Ian keeps writing about and which a lot of pollsters keep asking, which is, who's your favourite scapegoat for when Brexit goes wrong? Mm-hmm. And what no one's been asking amongst all this actually is, oh, it's coronavirus, it's all coronavirus, the economy going belly up, all coronavirus entirely even if we were flatlining in January before it even reached our shores. Mm -hmm. Um, What it does, however, is move us into a very different kind of debate which is technocratic and which isn't at all political. Because at the moment, we're all in a sort of game of, ah, well, there's a huge amount of uncertainty, so we're trying to compete with one another for who seems plausible and who seems to have the right answer. Actually, here it comes down to, no, let's trust those experts that we don't uh, have much time for anymore. Um, Let's look at actually what vaccine experts say on this. Let's look at how we treat this outbreak. Politicians tend to be very unsure and unsteady when they're in this sort of territory, because it means not taking centre stage, which they don't like, and it means taking advice, which they certainly don't like. Um, it's entirely counterintuitive to the whole process of Brexit. Um, the one thing I will say, though, about um, the point on stocking up on books rather than um, toilet papers is very wise. If you'll permit some product placement, the Wordsworth Classics edition of War and Peace comes in at 99p for 1,012 sheets, which is far better value for money than any new role.
1: How's <laughs> the paper quality?
3: So, so. <laughs> Desperate times.
0: Roz, there's a lot of talk that Trump has finally met a crisis that even he can't bloody tweet away. Um, is Boris Johnson going to be able to style this one out as he usually does?
2: Not necessarily. I think that's why you're seeing him appearing in public with Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, and surrounding himself with experts because he knows perfectly well that there are a large number of people in this country who do not trust him. I mean, this is one of the very difficult things for... Remainers at the moment because our instinct is to trust experts and put our faith in them and we worry at least I worry that Boris Johnson is in some way or is managing to sway expert opinion in his own interests and it's very difficult and it's very worrying because I—that this is a time more than any other time when I need and I want to trust the government mm-hmm. and I can't. I want to and I can't and I think that as soon as it gets to a stage where he is having to make difficult decisions rather than necessarily just acting on advice mm. from the chief medical officer, then things will start to get very difficult.
1: It's, that's a really fascinating thing, isn't it? Because there's, I've noticed a lot of people with a lot of gravitas in the science community, in, in the medicine community, not necessarily on this particular area. Feeling quite nervous about the government response, even though some of it clearly comes from expert advice, especially the stuff that seems to be based on behavioral psychology on this idea of like, you don't go, exactly, you don't go hard now, because then if you need to do it in two months, people will get bored. Now, people don't have a lot of faith in, mm. in that kind of, in the nudge stuff. It works very well for some things. It the doesn't nudge work unit so well is now a private company, by the way. It yeah, is yeah, in the right, civil yeah. service department. Yeah, that was on the camera, uh, right? It yeah. privatised. It's mm. a fucking weird little mm. entity, that one. Not enough people talk about that. the fact that there's a privatised mm. unit trying to operate on the subconscious level of the human brain to change human behaviour in a way that apparently <laughs> is for our benefit. <laughs> You're like, really? But that is actually a thing that is fucking happening. With
3: most of the shares given out to the directors <laughs> at the time as well.
1: Uh-huh, huh Thank you. Yeah, that's... Uh, fuck me. Um, so, anyway, so there's that sort of weird sense you get where people are actually... That corrosion that Roger's talk about of trust in the way that government makes decisions. You can actually see that in the debate right now at quite a high level in terms of people, very intelligent people, very well-read people, being, being like, I don't know whether I can take this advice
0: yeah. as, as it stands. Yeah, I mean, I think even the editor of The Lancet had sort yeah, of cri- yeah, yeah. Cri- yeah. criticised yeah. the stuff that... Um, Medical officials standing next to Boris Johnson were saying yesterday. Mm.
3: But if you look at how we dealt in the past with uh, these kinds of things, uh, foot and mouth outbreak of 2001, Tony Blair running around like a headless chicken, delaying the election for a month, Mm. which was never meant to happen. Mm. It was a four-year plan, which didn't quite come off. Um, Before that, the foot and mouth outbreak of 1967, Harold Wilson genuinely thinking, my God, my government's going to collapse over this. Mm -hmm. With hindsight, we actually look back on that and think, well, that was nothing. But we do tend to lose our heads over this.
0: Mm. Yeah. Over half a million pounds of dark money from secretive Tory groups and anonymous donors played a critical role in demolishing Labour's red wall, the key strategy that won the election for the Conservatives. That's the finding of a new investigation co-written by our special guest, Seth Tevo, for the independent journalism site Open Democracy. This dark money is an entirely legal but notoriously opaque process and campaigners have called for the party to open up on who is financing it. But, Seth, before we delve straight into that report, um, who really funds each of the, the main political parties?
3: Um, well, see, Labour have gone back to their roots under Corbyn. Uh, they've, they're now largely reliant upon trade union money because all the big donors have gone away. Um, to the I mean, Lib Dems? Uh, so to the Lib Dems, some to the Tories even. But uh, yes, their former donors have run a million miles and said no, not as, as long as Corbyn's. Uh, People like David Garrard, who gave millions to the Labour Party and was blocked for a peerage more than once, um, has uh, gone over to the Lib Dems, for instance. But, um, and the, the Lib Dems themselves have an odd accumulation of uh, pro-Remain. Uh, donors, sometimes actually the Tories. You have unlikely people like uh, Lord Laidlaw, a Conservative peer who gave £3 million to the Conservatives, tried to give £100,000 to the Lib Dems and was uh, denied as an impermissible donor and had to give the money back. But um, the Tories, intriguingly, are becoming more and more reliant on the finance sector and hedge funds in particular. That accounts for about 40% of all money that the Conservative Party raises. And they are raising record amounts, even if you adjust for inflation, the historic amounts they've raised in the past. They've never been anywhere like this. In fact, I think for the first time we are going to come close to hitting the national spending limit for a political party in a general election when we get the final figures for this election. Um,
0: And how did you get started on this particular investigation?
3: Uh, Gosh, uh, I suppose I've always been fascinated by who pays for political parties, because we like to think we have choice when we go into an election. And actually, a lot of that is dictated by who gets to us, whose messages do we hear? Who do we have more time for?
0: And We like to think we're not like America in yeah. terms of the, the billions and billions. That
3: but we're away. moving there pretty quickly. I mean, all the parties love to send delegations over to the um, the national conventions to salivate at all of the, uh, the fundraising techniques and the new ways in which they're spent uh, the, the spending the money. So yeah, I think we're definitely moving very far in that direction, uh, particularly with all of these various loopholes.
0: You mentioned that there's this £15,000 per seat spending limit. Yeah. Um, how much do candidates usually spend and how much did the dark money recipients get in
3: Uh, So that's an interesting question because, firstly, you can get away with overspending very, very easily. There's a really good trick which all the parties use for this, which is you fess up to it. Um, Because because the fine is lower than the amount? No, because the fine is only for lying on the return. So if you don't lie on the return and you declare it to the Electoral Commission, and you can look at at returns for all the previous elections. Um, Luke Pollard, the Labour MP for um, uh, one of the Plymouth constituencies, had a 12, 13K limit in 2015. He lost that election, but he actually spent 18K and he just declared it. And the thing is, when you declare it and you go over the fine limit, uh, over the limit, all that happens is that you end up um, being slapped on the wrist by the local council. They could theoretically give you a very modest fine, but they never do. So that's a very easy thing to do there. Um, and the other trick that they do is around what's called apportionment. Apportionment is where you say, oh, well, only a small fraction of our materials locally relevant on the local election. So that's why if you lived in a marginal constituency, you saw loads of leaflets, maybe 40 or 50 even, with Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn and Joe Swinson on them, virtually nothing about your local candidate, because it's only the stuff which has your local candidate on it that they have to declare towards partner. that
0: fifteen thousand exactly, and 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 so so these these dark money seats that the investigation yep. uh, that 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 you worked on looked into, uh, how much were they getting as a proportion of what they were allowed to get?
3: <laughs> well, it wasn't unusual for them to be getting quite legally um thirty or forty thousand pounds, sometimes sixty or seventy thousand pounds in some cases. Mm. um and again it's how you spend the money quite legitimately if you speak to people in all the parties they'll say yes we always spend fifty thousand pounds minimum in a marginal seat sometimes they'll go up to 100k
0: mm.
3: more in a by-election even though the limit is supposed to be 100k mm. as well but that's a whole other story um what's really interesting about this is the, w- the way that they raise this money through unincorporated associations
0: yeah i was going to ask you about that um so we'll come back to the kind of the anonymity point and sort of what mm-hmm. you know why it's defined as dark yep. um, but um, you came across something called the Midlands Industrial Council who oh. was set up to oppose Clement Attlee back in yeah. 1943 uh. um, and sound like something from some kind of David Peace novel um, they gave Nearly a quarter of a million pounds, almost half the the dark money that you were able to find and spent, as I understand it, mostly in the north of England. Um, Who are they? What's their record? What's all this about?
3: the Midlands Industrial Council were founded in 1949, and I've come across them a lot through the history books. I mean, literally looking at the Thatcher era, they were the big funders of the Tory party. And it was basically conservative uh, donors in industry, not always in the Midlands, but they used to have these big dinners, raise money and offer uh, cash stories. It wasn't a particularly big uh, thing there compared to when Lord Macalpine, the late Lord Macalpine, used to go around the city of London with a large sack and just invite people to put wads of cash into it. Um, They they were actually at the more sober end of conservative fundraising. But they've gone strangely silent in recent years. Um, They were originally very, very secretive. They wouldn't divulge who their members were. In 2006, they sort of had to because their membership list leaked. And so they just had to say, yeah, that that is an authentic list. There you go. And their donors went off into the Tory party and, and so on. What was an intriguing detail came not out of the returns to the Electoral Commission but came out of the new register of members' interests. It was just issued for this new parliament last month, because that showed, for the first time that the Midlands Industrial Council was behind a lot of the component donations from individual companies that were donating to the Tory party. So actually, they seem to have moved into a new territory where they have they used to be um, incorporated, they're now unincorporated, and they seem to be more of a network for introducing you to donors. So when you uh, quote our figure of a quarter of a million, that's a very, very cautious figure of the component members we know of, there may well be significantly more, and they may be responsible for significantly more.
0: So... This sort of networking thing that you mentioned. Uh, Tell us about the Conservative Leaders Club. This is where people are paying sort of up to, as I understand it, about fifty thousand pounds a year to dine. Oh, really? at least okay. Um, To dine with senior Conservatives. Is this just back to sort of cash for access stuff that we used to know about?
3: I think we'd run into libel problems if I gave you a straight answer to that question. (laughs) Um, Just you saying that makes it (laughs) a libel (laughs) problem. Well, not necessarily, because fortunately for us, the Conservative Party has refused for more than 18 months now to print a list of its members of its leaders group. So we can't actually libel people who 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 are are not identified. Um, It's not hard to guess in some cases, but yes. the Conservative Party is structured to have a whole series of donor clubs, uh, basically something for all budgets. It's actually very much the same principle that you have on selling an iPhone, which is you've got everybody wants the same product, but they've all got different budgets. So you find a slightly similar version of that to meet your budget. You can get, uh, you know, for 5k a year, you can join uh, the Front Bench Club for 10k a year, you can join the Renaissance Forum, 25k a year, the Treasurer's Group, and top of the tree is the Leader's Group. Uh, that's £50,000 a year minimum. A just to go to the dinners. Hmm. Now, they used to um, uh, declare who these people were as part of a transparency initiative under David Cameron. I had some fun telephone conversations, actually, with Tory HQ when I was ringing up to just ask, could we have a list, please? Um, and they, they seemed slightly baffled by this. And, oh, um, uh, I think that was a, a promise made a long, long time ago by Mr Cameron, which we, <laughs> we don't really want to uh, uh, entertain anymore. So no, no, thank you. So you you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out that Everybody who's giving at least 50,000 a years to the Conservative Party is entitled to attend the leaders' group. And if they're not attending the leaders' group, they're being seriously shortchanged.
0: <laughs> 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 but, but, but why don't donors want to reveal their identities or why don't they have to reveal their identities? Uh, Both.
3: I mean, it leads to awkward questions, you know. Um, they tend not to like publicity. A lot of these people come from... Uh, either sectors where there isn't a huge amount of scrutiny. If you work in hedge funds, the one thing you don't do is get publicity at all. Mm. Um, If you have inherited wealth, you don't necessarily have day-to-day journalists doorstepping you, asking you the consequences of your actions. So suddenly getting involved in a public Mm. domain like this is a whole new world for them.
0: And why don't they have to?
3: Ah, um, well, by definition, the leaders group do. That's, that's not where the dark, as it were, money is, is coming from. The Unincorporated Association is interesting. We can get on that. I don't know Go if Go for it. To. Yeah, um, tell
0: us so all.
3: It's, it's an interesting loophole. If you donate more than £1,500 to a political party in a year, you have to declare it. But um, Unincorporated Associations have a different threshold. So anything up to £7,500 a year that's funneled through an Unincorporated Association and then passed on doesn't have to be declared. And so if you then look at uh, people who, you know, husband and wife might choose to donate seven and a half thousand and both of their children might, it all adds up very, very quickly. And then, of course, the tax year is in the middle of April, so uh, you can quite easily split that to before and after that. You can very quickly donate quite sizable sums to unincorporated associations. Um, I mean, the best known of them, for example, is the United and Cecil Club. I met the organisers of the United and Cecil. They're quite secretive, but I I got drunk with them in a bar about 10 years ago and they uh, gave me a a series. (laughs) of lies about how they dated back to the (laughs) 1830s which is what they'd like to think but they're actually only from the 1940s Um, (laughs) (laughs) snobbery
0: snobbery's a a big (laughs) thing in the conservative party yeah
3: exactly Um, they're responsible for over a million pounds at least but a lot of that's not necessarily declared because it's just underneath the declaration thresholds. So, for example, there was a lot of money we found out about through the recent register of members' interests, which didn't quite qualify for the threshold. Because what the C club likes to do is to give out their money far and wide. They send it straight to the marginal constituencies, small wads, £1,000, £2,000, £4,000 here and there, rather than a big lump sum. So, actually... Assessing their full extent is quite hard to realise, but for example we have on the record uh, Alexander Tumerko, a current or former member of the United and Central Club and a Conservative Party donor, who has boasted of uh, personally bankrolling 40 different Conservative MPs, uh, election or re-election campaigns, and the Conservative Party, whenever they're asked about this will always say in their comments to us, uh, we we raise lots of small money at the grassroots level. Well, the accounts don't suggest that. The accounts suggest, uh, and the filings certainly suggest, that 80% or more, probably significantly more, of the Conservative Party's total donation income comes from just the leaders group, Mm. which is a group of uh, no more than 207 individuals in the last decade. So that's the small pool of funding that actually accounts for eighty percent plus of mm-hmm. the Conservative Party, uh, and these red wall seats. If you look at the donations going straight to the incumbent or rather the newly elected MPs, um, actually, it's all from down south. It's all from prosperous millionaires in the southeast of London.
0: And speaking of which, um, there was one case that that you talked about in the report, um, and I'll quote from it: a little-known company, D Contracts Limited, gave twenty-six thousand five hundred pounds to eight successful Tory candidates. D Contracts has never given registrable donations before. It has one director, a Knightsbridge-based Romanian citizen who has no obvious record of previous political activity in the UK. Uh, they own a construction company, redeveloping a major. Knightsbridge site around the corner from Harrods.
3: That's correct. Uh, no, we, and uh, we tried to contact him. We've, we've actually had difficulty even getting in touch with this gentleman. Um, but no, I, I personally went around both to the construction yard around the corner from his registered office. Uh, looked do, you fairly have, nondescript. do you have a
0: newspaper with two holes cut out for your eyes?
3: No, but I, I was wearing a trench coat and a fedora that day because I had no idea I'd be doing this sort of work. So uh, it's a typical day in Knightsbridge where the only people there were me and a bunch of very obvious burglars who were casing the joint for... It's an empty house. <laughs> so I couldn't have been more suspicious. <laughs> do,
2: do you have a sense of how much of this money might be coming from Russian sources? Because I know that uh, quite a lot of Boris Johnson's uh, leadership campaign was bankrolled, if I'm not mistaken, by donors. Uh, is is it your sense that some of the money is coming uh, from Russia, ultimately coming from Russia for election campaigns too?
3: Uh, Well, there's a short answer and a long answer to that, And the short one is, yeah, there are plenty of Russian expats in the UK who are donating a lot of money here. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the time of the election, Open Democracy uh, ran a story that Peter Gagin and I did on uh, the 1.2 million that Lubov Chernukin uh, donated. She's the wife of Putin's former finance minister. That figure is now 1.6 million because uh, the week after we printed our story, uh, 400,000 pounds more was donated by her. So Which is uh,
0: your fault, <laughs> <laughs> clearly, clearly. Um, no, generous felt
3: generous. No, and, and, there, and there are plenty of uh, Russian donors, but these are expats who are dual British citizens, so they're quite legally allowed to donate money. And to all intents and purposes, as far as anyone's concerned, it's their own money. Uh, where, if you're asking for sort of Russian money, you're asking Russian state money, and there are questions about this. Um, I think it's helpful to look at this more in more general terms. Um, the Putin regime has a policy of funding dissent in EU member states. You know, the the first case of this was uh, in France when uh, a Hungarian think tank that specialises in these kinds of things managed to find that uh, there was an interest-free, long-term, almost permanent loan made to... Um, Uh, Marine Le Pen's party uh, on behalf of a Russian bank that was tied to the Russian state. Since then, uh, you're looking at payments that have been made to divisive parties in Greece, in Italy, in Poland, in the Czech Republic, in uh, Finland, uh, in Germany, even in uh, Catalonia. So uh, given this pattern... The question shouldn't surely be, is there Russian money in British politics? Is Why shouldn't there be? Why should Britain be more or less the only EU country where there isn't Russian money sloshing around uh, on this? But it's not as if the the donations are geared towards a particular agenda or a particular political cause. They're there to cause the maximum amount of disruption and dissent. Um, The best expose I saw on this was actually from a a political scientist who specialises in uh, Chinese foreign relations. He said, look, the... Bottom line is that Russia can never compete economically, militarily or in nuclear terms with the big powers like China and like the USA. They're never going to be one of the big boys, which means they're forced out of desperation to rely on more creative measures. Mm. And if, if you want the modern extrapolation of that, this presidential election, I think we're far more likely to see Russian intervention take the form of donations to the Democrats than to the Republicans simply because the goal is to create dissent. It's not to back a particular political cause.
0: Now, this is the Romaniacs podcast, and the one thing we haven't touched on is uh, the amount of dodgy money that may or may not have been floating around the referendum back in 2016. Uh, have you done any work looking at that? A
3: bit. I mean, it's uh, I, I slightly hesitate to talk about it because a, bit, a lot of it's been done to death by now. Uh, two, three years ago, I, I was actually... Um, I was the person who broke the story about Darren Grimes in Private Eye about three hours before BuzzFeed ran a, a separate story, a very, very good story. That um, so Just
0: remind our listeners what that Darren Grimes story was.
3: Yes, or. this is the story that the official Vote Leave campaign managed to get around spending limits quite legitimately in some ways by um, donating money directly to a Canadian supplier of targeted ads on behalf of a 22-year-old fashion student... Without the money ever actually reaching the account of said fashion students at the time, uh, it was something to the tune of about seven hundred thousand pounds nearly it was i think six hundred and seventy odd k or thereabouts, and it allowed them to go over the spending limit at uh, the, the end of the election. There have been various court cases and various appeals he 's been successful in his appeal about having ticked the wrong box. But separately, the Electoral Commission has fined uh, the Vote Leave campaign about the original allegation, and that's never been overturned in a court of law. It's the separate case about Darren Grimes ticking the wrong box, which was overturned.
0: And if you were a legislator for one day, um, you've you've talked so much about how a lot of this is, well, all of it is legal. And these are just very creative ways around the law. What are the loopholes that tomorrow you would close if you could?
3: To be honest, this uh, is up there in polling with, in popularity terms, with a bubonic plague. But I'd look at spending limits and at donation limits. Anything short of donation limits means that political parties depend on individuals. There's a rule that party treasurers and party fundraisers have. It's called the 90-10 rule. 90% of your money will come from just 10% of your donors, and 10% of your money will come from 90% of your donors. And as long as that holds true, you're always going to pay attention to your big donors, and you're always going to ignore all the others.
0: Finally, what is the truth behind Chlorinated chicken. Well, obviously, it's that we should all go vegan. But chemically drenched avians have become the poster bird for a disadvantageous trade deal with the United States. But what would Britain really be accepting if it dropped EU food standards for cheap US food? There is an excellent piece by Megan Tatum in the new issue of Wired magazine. The headline is How Chlorinated Chicken Ate Brexit. And we'll post it on social media. Ros, the key point is that while the US exports about 13 billion pounds worth of food to the EU, the vast majority of chickens have been banned from our shelves due to concerns um, about chlorine washing. Um, This this ban uh, came in after a food poisoning scandal in the 80s and 90s. And then since then, the EU has just gone for prevention rather than cure. Um, Are we overreacting, therefore, on the whole chlorinated chicken issue?
2: Not necessarily, but it it's more than just chlorinated chicken. It's interesting the way in Brexit, so many things, particularly foodstuffs, become signifiers for things that are much more important. So, you know... Can I talk about British fish? No, no I'm not going to talk about fish. British fish. That. favourite <laughs> There are no fucking British fish. Okay. No, the fish, you know, there's having your cake and eating it. There's something very, very Brexity about you food. We are obsessed. you a rich seam here. Yeah, I know. I can, feel, I can feel a piece coming on. No, um, but seriously, it is just chlorinated chicken. It's things as well like the growth hormones that um, American farmers tend to inject into their cattle. It's things like giving dairy cows... Hormones to make them produce more milk. Now we know that that means that they're more likely to get mastitis, which means that they have pus in their milk, mm-hmm. and, and this means that they then
0: need antibiotics. Exactly, so you're also ingesting, and that's why,
2: th- yeah, that's why use of antibiotics um, in the US by the US agriculture system has gone up about a quarter in the last decade, whereas use in the UK has fallen by about a quarter in the last decade. So chlorinated chicken is just a a sign you know if you like it's only the tip of the iceberg
0: and Ian the US has been trying to reverse the chlorine ban for years and uh, the European Food Agency almost rescinded as I understand it in 2005 Um, it was NGOs and of course French farmers that stopped them Um, has it become an illogical article of faith now that we don't have uh, chlorinated chicken is a symbol of uh, like government versus regulatory government as an approach
1: Mostly the latter. I mean, the, the chlorine isn't particularly harmful in this. Obviously, it just serves to clean up a lot of frankly fucking lazy um, behavior in the production of food, which just doesn't give a shit remotely about the welfare of the animal, and and including you know having concerns about just the the man the ethical manner in which you produce this stuff. Um, however. Things in the world are complicated and people can be idealistic and cynical at the same time. And it's undoubtedly true that there is also just a, prote- a protectionist approach by the EU for its own agricultural sector that, that it used this stuff for. And these two things can coexist at the same time. Now The Americans are going to push quite hard for this to change with Britain. I mean, that, I would say agriculture is the main thing, closely followed by pharmaceuticals. And probably after that, sort of data protection demand. Those would be the three main things that you're sort of looking at. The the attack that will come on on NICE, National Institute for Clinical Excellence in the NHS, and the demand for Silicon Valley to have us pull away from the EU's very stringent rules on data protection. Um, But before all of that, it will be agricultural products, and they will put on the pressure for us to do it. And and then the question becomes, how do you think that plays out as a media war in the UK? On the one hand, people might feel very comfortable with, you know, the concept of American food. they have gone to America, they have eaten that food. On the other, there is this sort of sense of America as the World West, as somewhere that doesn't really do enough regulation for this sort of thing. Um, There is, I think, like... I mean, who knows? We say shit about our culture. You know, when Dorian said the other day, who well, was looking at the old Orwell stuff around, you know, the British are pragmatic. Yeah. And, go, and you sort of think maybe that's true. And then the, the last few years have proved it wrong. I mean, we sort of think that the Brits do like animals and care about animals. You know, my, you know, my Latino family were always just like, well, the Brits are obviously going to save a dog when they would leave five children to die. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the British personality. Yes, Is they that, would. Yeah, uh, they probably would. <laughs> I mean... I don't know how true that is. If it is true, then you want the EU standards, things like an independent veterinary presence in abattoirs. That's why that stuff is there. It's, yes, as a last guard against human disease, but also to take care of the welfare of the animal in that scenario. So it it remains to see which which side of the coin that that would play out on in terms of public debate.
0: Seth, how are you on chlorinated chicken? Does it make you salivate at the prospect or recoil in horror?
3: (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty much speechless at the thought of it, to be honest. No, I'm I'm quite loath on, on these sorts of discussions because um, I'm aware that a lot of it comes down to technical expertise. And um, at a time when around coronavirus, we're all saying, well, can we actually listen to what the experts say? My doctorate is not in this. I am not an expert on this. <laughs> My views don't matter.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah, obviously for me as a vegan, a lot of this is about you know, the animal welfare element of it and unhygienic farming. And there is, of course, a link to to contagion and pandemic. And, you know, we do know that it's the very, very poor uh, conditions that uh, industrial agriculture of farmed animals um, creates the, the conditions where you can get that leap of a virus. Now, that is not known to be why the COVID-19 um, jumped from animals into humans, but it has been uh, linked to you know other things like swine flu and avian flu previously. Um, so wouldn't it just be lovely if we didn't treat animals that abominably um, and put our global health at risk?
3: Yeah. No, what what really interests me actually as a sort of historian of government is this idea that in the 1980s and 1990s, the EEC, is, as it previously was, had a pretty poor record actually for, um, for animal welfare and so on. And they went within the space of about a decade through the 1990s and saying, no, we're going to have some of the most rigorous uh, sets of laws around this. Uh, in cleaning up their act in a big way. And as a result, I just don't like this idea that, you know, uh, with Brexit we are seeing how much we can water down our laws. And our government keeps saying, well, we're not going to uh, have any less uh, protection for these sorts of things. Clearly they blatantly are. And clearly that's what's driving so much of this.
1: And to bring us back to to the thing that we started this podcast on, of you know, toilet paper, I still love the fact that the EU based the entire assessment of of food standards on, on this hazard analysis that was based on NASA thinking... It's fucking terrible when an astronaut shits themselves mm. in space. You know, that's the core thing. Of like, that is a genuinely significant logistical problem for us. This is how we're going to treat food safety. And it was that system that has an analysis that the EU used for its own regulation.
0: We've come to the end of the show, which means it's time to add another brick to our Brexit bridge. The one we're building back to Europe. Seth what physical or abstract thing would you like to add to our Brexit bridge, which has a lot more chance of being built than Boris Johnson's bridge from Scotland to Ireland?
3: Very abstract. Pretty Patel's chances of getting through an employment tribunal.
0: Ooh. <laughs> and that's the end of the show. What, Thank- does, that, what does that look like, as
3: a brick? Is it I mean, does have a... Amorphous and small. <laughs>
0: And that's the end of the show. Thanks to Ian, Roz, and our guest, Seth Alexander Tevo. Now it's time for our theme song, Demon is a Monster from Corner Shop. You've still got time to help their album, England is a Garden, go to the charts as high as possible. Stream it right now or buy a physical copy at ampleplay.co.uk. Now, here's some thanks to our latest Patreon backers.
2: Hello from me to Sarah King, Matt Batty, Colin Newlin, Sam Grice, Gay Wenders, Duncan Rawlings, Lynn Parker and Gavin McCormick. Oh,
1: (laughs) that might be my Gavin McCormick. I hope it is. If it isn't, sorry, Gavin, I'm sorry, I don't know you. But if it is also my Gavin McCormick, that'd be fantastic. Should we just cut out everything I just said? That'd be great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And hello from me to Tamara Murray, Kathy Stevenson, Heidi Bailey, Rachel Walker, Michael Sykes, Toria Richards and Poppy Pite.
0: And finally, hello from me to Lloyd, Mandy Perry, Adam Bolton, assuming it's not the Adam Bolton, but hello if it is, uh, Samantha Juniper, Paul Haig, Sam Tomlinson, Gio Gotti and Gertie Beaver.
2: Romaniacs was presented by Naomi Swift with Ian Dunt and Ros Taylor Audio production was by Robin Lieber Jacob Archibald was the
3: assistant producer and the producer is me, Andrew Harrison Romaniacs is a Podmasters production